Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. I sat down with Peter McFadden this week. We talked about pirates, we talked about his upbringing, we talked about fairness in the family home, we talked about being a compassionate undertaker, we talk about charity work in the disability realm in Uganda and with comic relief. We talk about local politics. We talk about reclaiming local politics with the independence for Froome. We talk about flat pack democracy. We talk about the books flat pack democracy. And then we talk about pirates again. Here it is. going okay. I, I sort of i ran i went out the the side door down this side of the building on the on the right and you weren't there so Sorry. Thought, oh shit he's on the other side door so i ran to that and for a minute i thought where is he and i found you uh wheeling and dealing a, yep. a very very small bike wheeling a, and dealing a small bike what's You're the right. story there why is there a big shed for a, a grandson a, a need for a bike i saw the ones in the car park i was going to go to the jumble at the weekend yeah. i didn't make it pick up a bike for me grandson and then i just happened to find them available so yeah. there we are done deal nice little bike it looked all right yeah. looked quite, are you gonna go through it and do all the brakes and does need a little bit of that yes. yes a little bit of that that was mm. kind of the when i was a kid all of our bikes and stuff with my dad it was always you know checking the bloody brakes Fiddling and everything them. and i had mates who didn't even have brakes on their bikes they sort of like stripped <laughs> them so i only had one on the back and then, or a front brake only, which is not such a clever idea, really. No. No. I don't think so. And uh, I remember one day, one of the older kids, we used to go out in like little BMX gangs, and one of the older kids took my little reflective bits off my wheels, because it was, ah, this would be much cooler without these. And I was like, yeah, no, you're right, because no one else's... Dad went absolutely spare. What's he doing taking those off there? Why is he taking those yeah. off there? Probably put them on his own bike. For your safety. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the cars won't see it now. Oh, dear. So, right. So, this, this podcast is all about sort of in, interesting people doing interesting things. And I think you're, you're, you know, so far, you're meeting that criteria. You're a funeral director. Are you an undertaker? Is that what you'd Same sort of thing. Same yeah. sort of thing. You're a pirate of sorts yep. you're bringing down the government piece by yep. piece definitely uh and um probably so many more things a social enterpriser mm -hmm. where do we begin where does it start with you pmac um some of those things are rooted in ancient history right i think in the sense that i realized the other day that i've always been in i've always been interested in being on the other side um i've been having a bit of a pirate sense yeah we were talking about this in terms of um moments you're proud of on some conversation i was with the other day and I, I remember um i was offered the role of head boy at school and i turned it down to, to the horror of my parents and not my parents actually they were they were not bothered my grandparents you know it's like how could you possibly do that but it's like i re it's that whole thing i don't want to be part of a club that'll have me right so, i mean and, You're an um, outsider. Yeah, I, I am. And it seems have always been in quite a quiet sort of way. So I'm not really, I'm not a very loud rebel. Right. I'm more likely to be sort of round the back, sort of prodding people. Not, you know, that sounds so like a sort so of torture, more, you're doesn't an, it? You're an organiser, I'd, I'd yeah. probably say. So instead of being out there, being the sort of the, the front, the face... Yeah. You know, some sort of like James Dean look, you know, cigarette hanging out your lips, whatever. You're in the back making it work. You're in the engine room. I'm the, I'm the, I've always been the producer to other people's directors. So the, right. two, the two proper jobs I've ever had um, in whatever, you know, 50 years, 40 years, in both cases I've had very charismatic directors. Right. So I first worked with disabled people in Cornwall with a guy who was incredibly... Um, influential in lots of ways about disabled people taking risk. So it was that the place I worked was all about people coming who otherwise were sort of cotton wooled by society right. and saying, you can come here for a, a week's course and go clifftop walking and abseiling and you know, all sorts of taking risks. And then we had loads of staff and volunteers. So actually it was really safe. But, you know, but my role in that was to kind of 
make things happen very much in the background. He was the person who'd sort of say, why don't we do clifftop walks with the blind? And uh, whatever. And, and my role was to sort of gulp a bit and then work then out how we could do it. You know? right. And then when, I, when we came to Froome, I worked for a, um, another um, charming, charismatic leader called um, Chris Underhill, who set up Action on Disability and Development. And well, his first uh, idea was to send me to Uganda uh, where it happened there was a civil war still going on. And I did go to Uganda. You did? Um, yeah, and I had a fantastic time. It was the end of a civil war. Um, but again, my role with Chris was, he'd have 10 ideas, a couple of which would be absolutely brilliant, yeah. a couple of which would be totally disastrous, yeah. and then a lot in the middle. Right. And my role was to try and get the, get the good ones to work, yeah. you know, to lose the ones, the silly ones, quietly. And does that take an, 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 like some sort of tack with these kinds of people? Do you have to figure out how you're going to almost sort of manipulate them into agreeing with you that those are the good ideas? Because they're probably going to be set on the batshit crazy stuff, aren't they? Listen, and yeah. you have to sway them into the more, um, into the, as you said, the brilliant ideas that are probably a bit more practical. How do you do that with such strong, big personalities? It takes a little bit of chess, I imagine, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think chess is right, because it's not going to work by... You, you definitely can't do it by confrontation or by, I'm not going to do this, it's a mad idea. Yeah. Because that would almost cause them to want that idea to happen. And they are ultimately the boss, you know, so they can say, no, we are going to do this and you've got to make it happen. So yeah, lose, I mean, losing things quietly, I suppose, um, partly. And then, yeah, you're right, making things ha happen um, in other ways, more gently. That, I mean, I think that has been my lifetime role, really being in the, in the background. It is more, as I, as I said, more of a producer's role than a director in terms of films or productions, I think. Right. And who were your, who's led you down this path? Did you have particularly radical parents or did you grow up with, you know, rogues on the TV? What was, what was who were your heroes when you were growing up? Because yeah. I've always been attracted to rogues and people that do things a bit differently. Um, I don't know why... But I, but I am. So I think we're kindred spirits in that regard. Yeah. I, I don't... There was a guy called Fergus O'Connor who was an Irish rebel. I was called Fergus at school, um, including by the teachers. It became a nickname just because... Um, so he was an independence for Ireland many, many years ago. Um, uh, so he was... Well, I don't know if he was a role model. He was just a name. Um, but my parents actually were quiet and very... They were incredibly, they were really into fairness and um, into doing things right, social justice. So they were role models in that sense, definitely. My dad was, and my grandfather, um, you know, who were, so they were heavily into all things environmental and green and gentle and right in that sort of way. Um, and as I say, very hot on fairness. So to the extent that I had three siblings, and one of the things that I remember is uh, on a Sunday, we got a Mars bar after after Sunday lunch, mm. but that was cut up very carefully so that you cut sort of four bits in, no, two bits in the middle, but then the two ends you cut sideways so that everybody got an equal amount of chocolate because otherwise the ends would have get more chocolate. I just uh, remember my dad... Because it slopes down on the... On yeah, the, yeah somewhere right. or another, but, you know, so that everybody... Uh, that sounds so like think, OCD. Yeah, exactly. I think... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're right. I think there was definitely an element of that in terms of fairness. And who got but, the caramel you know. left on the knife? Ah, good point. Yeah, I imagine, good. yeah, my mum probably licked that when she was doing the washing up and didn't yeah. tell us, but she was secretly <laughs> <laughs> getting that extra bit of caramel. That extra caramel. But I don't, think I, I don't think I did have... Oh, yeah, no, actually, I'm wrong. Of course, George Best, who was my long-term hero and still is. Although I watched something the other night which did rather taint that, I have to say. Uh, it was a really, really good documentary about George Best. But it's the footballer, right? Yeah, footballer. Yeah. And there was, some, there was a bit of, of wife battery that I didn't know about, which is kind of a bit yeah, of a problem. Yeah, it gets you there, doesn't it? Yeah. That, was the same, that was the same with me and James Brown. I was watching this James Brown documentary and I was like, this guy is amazing. He has captured both sides of, you know, he's captured all, all audiences with his music. He's... He was a, an icon and a, 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 a statue, like a pillar of strength for the black community. And then goes and hits all his girlfriends. Yeah, not so good, like, really. Oh, my God. 
Like, for yeah. God's sake. I know. The, the number of people who must be not knowing what to do with their Jimmy Savile badges or their um, Jim will fix it badges <laughs> and their, their you know, um, who's the Australian dude? Um, oh, okay. Rolf. Uh, Rolf. You Mr. Know, Harris. Who, yeah, yeah, Mr. Harris, who, who everybody loved and, and collected his paintings and watched his TV show. It's a kind of, it's, it taints your heroes a bit when things like that, when it goes wrong, doesn't it? Well, they say never but, meet your heroes, don't they? And I know that that, that means, you know, don't meet them in real life because they're probably far different to how you've built them up in your mm. mind. But it's definitely, as people grow older and and the media and and the paparazzi and journalism gets more and more intrusive mm. and more and more, it gets deeper into the people's lives. I think more and more crap is coming out about people that yeah, could yeah. have been... I know, sad. Well, maybe most people have a dark side that um, they don't want revealed. But George well, was my hero because of his rebelliousness, right. definitely. You know, that he did, what he did what he felt like and walked out of things. And the same way as Eric Cantona was, because as you can probably get out, there's a Man United thing going on here. But his, you know, his resignation at 60 when he just said um, something along the lines, of, you know, when asked, what, you know, so what's all this about, Eric? And he said, oh, when the, when the sardine follows the troller, uh, it is time to leave or something like that. You know, something completely <laughs> enigmatic and, uh, and meaningless. And anyway, right. Well, Enigmatic and meaningless, all at the same time. At the same time, that's quite something. So you've so so where do you go from Cornwall with the uh, your disabled assistant yeah. job? Cornwall was disability, as was Froome. So Froome still has a an international charity that works with disabled people, which is its headquarters is about two hundred yards from where we're sitting. Ah, um, that. Uh, but its work is in Africa and. Um, India and other countries. So, and it was set up to support the rights of disabled people. Right. So it basically said uh, that most disabled people don't want charity. Actually, they want they want to have basic human rights. They want to be able to get married and have jobs and have somewhere to live. You know, and they don't they don't want to be in homes for disabled people or whatever. Because of course, you know, there's no anyway. It's they have a they know, well, they know there's it. no difference, is there? If you know, if you walk out today and and fall off your chopper and and lose your legs, it doesn't. You're still Andy, aren't you? It doesn't change yes. you ultimately. Anyway, as we know, disabled people uh, tend to be often put outside of our society. So it was all about trying to to support groups of people in developing countries, and still is. That's what it does. So I spent um, ten years, I suppose, a, a lot of the time in other countries, in Africa and India, and. Oh places. yes, this is what this is the the role that sent you to Uganda. Is this is this right? Yeah. So, um, what was Uganda like? What were you doing there? <laughs> so, you, so you're on the back of a civil war. Yeah. Your boss says to you, "Hey, I've got this brilliant idea," and you think, "Right, how am I going to play chess with this one?" Oh, I was too, I was too young then. I didn't have that. Oh, you didn't have point. that sort of thought, insight. Where's Uganda? Yeah, <laughs> sounds fun. I think I'll go there. Oh, and there's a civil war. I didn't know that, Ben. So but by that stage, I was already married to Annabelle, who I still am very married to. And um, so she was left here and found out a few, some days after I'd gone, she went, um, uh, you know, somebody said, he's gone where? And she was really cross because there was no, this is all pre-email, pre-any contact at all. Um, so I disappeared for a month um, into Uganda and had, a, as I say, had a fantastic time because it was the end of the civil war. So it was like liberation. So this is the end of Idi Amin, Obote, some horrendous dictators that Uganda had for nearly 30 years who completely screwed the country. But what there was, was there were, there were old um, residential centers for disabled people. So the British, as colonial masters, had set up um, these homes for disabled people. So they still existed, but they'd been abandoned in terms of any resources, any funding, any anything for decades. So you had these little communities of disabled people, incredibly impoverished. So really staggering poverty um, in the sense of they're just about growing enough food to survive or not. So what does that look like so, when, you're, when you're boots on the yeah. ground? Because I think, I think we all have an idea of what poverty is and what it looks like from probably rather ignorantly from adverts asking for two pounds a month on the TV. But mm. when you're actually there, what does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? Mm. Are you, is there, do you have an issue to, uh, do, you, do you have problems computing that? Is it so alien? Yeah. 
My problems, Andy, were always more when I came home, right. weirdly, in some ways, that many of the people I've met in the, all of those years were incredibly kind and uh, gentle and, you know, they, 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 they lived the lives they lived, but, uh, you know, with nothing to eat or just living from hand to foot and sleeping lots of people in one room with the few scraps of clothing they've got on. I, I mean, I did meet some people... Actually, later I worked for Comic Relief, and there was one particular slum I went into in uh, in Kampala, um, and I remember going to visit some disabled people. This is when AIDS had also kicked off, and disabled people, a lot of disabled people, got AIDS because they didn't. They were almost um, all illiterate um, because they wouldn't be going to school right. because they're not included in the system, and so they can't read any of the information. Correct. Correct. And these were particularly often uh, deaf people as well. So if there's anything on the radio, you're not hearing it. So you know, so you so you know nothing. Right. So that, so so whole sections of um, the disabled people were wiped out by AIDS, and um, including many of the organisations that we'd supported for years. Right. So so all of the people that I worked with a bit later in Zambia, the leadership of all the organisations. Well, actually, not just the leadership, all died of AIDS. You know, because because nobody knew anything about them, and just because you know, just because they're physically disabled or deaf or blind doesn't mean they don't have sex. I mean. Yeah. You know, and they had families and so on and so on. So yeah. it spread through like wildfire. But there were people I visited there who were, when you talk about smell, I just remember going into one house, which was, it just hit me. You know, it's like, right. because there's somebody living in the corner in a pile of shit, basically. Right. And um, who's not, at, well, not being looked after at all. Um, and, you know, seeing this little, I can still see his face, you know, because his teeth were sort of sticking out of his head in a very sort of skeletal look. Yeah, and that is that is more sh- much more shocking because what do you say? Because you can't actually do anything in mm. I- in the immediacy. Well, there's very little you can kind of do. Right. That person died not long afterwards, but it's kind of like um, what we were about was trying to change the system. It was about trying to get rights for disabled people. You see what I mean? So, yeah. so it wasn't about, as I said before, in a way, it wasn't about here's ten quid. You know, let me help you. Yeah. Let me let me let me give you some food. It wasn't about that. It was let's 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 find a way that you can be brought in. You know, let's make it so that there's a percentage of disabled people who, by law, who have to be given jobs. Let's try and work with you to try and uh, get some of you educated so that you can start campaigning for um, for rights, so that you are included, so that you can be given free transport on buses, so you can get to work even though you can't walk or whatever it might be. So it was those long-term things. And the constant battle of that was that often we were working with people who didn't have anything to eat. So if you're saying to them, okay, let's have another meeting tomorrow to discuss how to do that, and they're kind of going, I can't do that. You know, we've, you've already spent all today talking about how we're going to set up an organization. Now you want me to spend another day, I, I, I beg for a living. Right. You know, if you take me off the street, or if I'm not on the street begging, not what am I meant to eat? Right. You know, and then do you start, well, often actually you do have to start supplying food at meetings or whatever because otherwise people can't come. Right. Not don't want to, they, they, they recognise why they need to, but, yeah. you know. But it's getting that balance right is really difficult because well, otherwise you're back into charity. That as an opportunist thing then. Go, of oh, course, yeah, of course. I'm meeting course. tomorrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they come and they eat the food and then yeah, nothing yeah, yeah. happens. And the people who get elected into the organisations right. then start paying themselves because there is some money coming into that organization and then they become, you get into the situation where they, they keep their jobs. Yeah. It's technically a democratic organization, but they make bloody sure they keep the job because with the job comes, I don't know, the food at meetings, yeah. you know? And why wouldn't you? Yeah. But <laughs> hard. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Is this around the time the, uh, the Catholic Church was spreading this misinformation around condoms and contraception with the with the AIDS thing yeah it would have been in Uganda yeah well there's all sorts of stuff happened with, never with AIDS wasn't that. there wow. it's just it's I the worst thing ever I know well there was so much misinformation the South African president who who went down a route of um it's not happening and um and uh and either it oh, was, we're seeing that today with COVID aren't we yeah Absolutely. In fact, in Tanzania, there's a, an evangelical president who's heavily into God, but uh, and you can't get um, you can come to church. It doesn't spread in church. The uh, coronavirus, incidentally, it's you know, you're fine coming to church. Is that the fellow that just died? I don't think I so. I did see. I mean, maybe oh, it's a bit of a meme, but so. I saw a, I saw a thing of a 
a preacher, a very evangelical okay. type preacher who said, oh, no, Can it's I okay. Happen? It's not, you know, this and that. Mm. And then he got it and died. Tanzania's got a massive, uh, as I understand it, a huge coronavirus um, problem. Uganda, which went down a, okay, let's lock everything down. Let's really, um, you know, do this properly, in inverted commas, do this WHO way. I've had one person die so far. That's a neighboring country, you know. And then, of course, a huge problem of people crossing a border because they're very porous borders, people fleeing uh, Tanzania and, of course, then bringing the virus with them. But anyway. So why, when did you move on from this, this sort of... Uh, I moved on from that world because uh, we had Ben and Amy, my children, um, partly, and I was away all the time, uh, or a lot of the time, and I wanted to be in Froome. You didn't want to miss them growing up. I didn't want to miss them growing up. And uh, yeah, so I started working more here and then I phased out of um, uh, of action on disability and development. Uh, when I say phased, I went part-time first and then, I, and then I stopped working for them. And then I started working for other charities who were um, Britain-based or British-based. Primarily, um, I, I did a sort of, um, which way around is this game to, uh, poacher turned gamekeeper. Is that what I mean? Anyway, instead of yes. applying to people for money, I started working for Comet Relief. Um, so, so I moved to the to the an organisation which was raising money and then distributing it to charities like right. Action on Disability and Development, because actually I'd written lots of applications, so I knew how to read. I knew how to read people's applications and go, that's not what you're really saying, is it? So I mean, I became an, <laughs> I became an assessor right. of applications and then I started various funding um, uh, streams within Comedy Relief. Right. Um, what kind of wool would people attempt to pull over your eyes in that situation? Some um, of the things that jump to mind when you think, that is particularly sneaky, sir. <laughs> I suppose that there is always a thing about how much money you're using to run your organisation uh, versus how much money you're, uh, you know, is going to the people. Um, and Comic Relief was always very, very good at recognising that it costs money to run an organisation. And if you haven't got a, a functioning organisation, it doesn't work. You can't just send all the money to a group of impoverished people and expect them to cope with it. You have to have structure. But is there a, is there a limit to how much it costs... I mean, there is a limit to how much it costs, and some would be paying perhaps far more than they, they need to, um, most particularly around having expats in the country so that they'd have, you know, British people working in whatever country it is, paid whatever, 30, 40, 50 grand a year, when you could have had um, a lot more uh, local people. Because with every expat, often there was a whole package of, uh, you know, fees to move them back and forward from Britain and funding for their skill, children to be in school here and, and, and. So it could be massive, you know, as a percentage of the cost. So looking out for them. There was one, one of the things I, I, I realised early on is that the notes on people's budgets, they often forget to delete. So they send you the budget and particularly on Excel spreadsheets, there's a tiny little red dot, which has got the notes in. There's one I particularly remember, which uh, when I focused on the red dot, it said, um, I've put in two Land Rovers, but I don't think I'll get away with it. No. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? Do you pull these people up on that? Then, no. or do you just well, sort of, like... I didn't tell them about the red dot. I right. just, I didn't. I just said. Um, so I noticed you put in two two Land Rovers. I'm not sure you'll need that as many as that. Will you? <laughs> <laughs> and then I presumably I can't remember this, but I presumably oh no, you're probably right. Maybe we don't. Oh yeah, but, no, you know. sure, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. Don't know why I did that. <laughs> So uh, I, I'm assuming after that you became an undertaker. Was that, or has that always been a theme? Um, a theme? You're not so, saying. So, yeah, death has always been a theme. <laughs> <laughs> death is a theme. It's the only thing we can be sure of, Andy. There's some famous phrase in there about taxes and death being the only thing we can be sure of. But actually, I'm not so sure about the taxes. You don't have, you know, you can oh, probably get Jeff away Bezos. without paying them. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, death is, is always there. I've always been interested in death because um, my mum died, ooh, 1976, I think. So anyway, whatever that is, 30, you know, 35 years ago, something like that. Um, uh, we lived and my dad worked and we lived in Northern Ireland at that time, but her family were in England and her body was flown to England at huge expense. And then we had a, a cremation uh, in a crematorium near Oxford 
which was completely hopeless for everyone with a, a, a vicar, I imagine, who didn't know my mum at all. He did get her name right, I think, but I'm not even sure about that. And then we went to a pub and had crap food, you know, and my mum was really into nice food. And it was kind of like, oh, this is terrible. It was not the correct no, this is, this going is, out. No, this has served nobody well. So I've always had that in the back of my mind um, and, and always felt that we could do things better. And the whole funeral industry still is to a large extent I mean, I know we haven't got there like, but it's uh, yet, but it's a bit like the whole world of politics. It's, it's in some ancient ceremony, uh, ancient century. Right. All those, all the black stuff, all of that, all the, you know, that was all invented by the Victorians. It doesn't have to be like, you can do anything you like. It doesn't have to be so morose. Uh, yeah. No, you, and actually it turns out that to, to set yourself up as an undertaker, you'd need a mobile phone. I mean, you don't, there's no qualifications. There's no anything. There's right. no, I mean... Actually, I and uh, there are three of us who run Greenwood Funerals, uh, one of whom had, uh, had done a lot more funerals for many years and then two of us who hadn't. And we've all done, we did go and do training in how to do things, um, yeah. particularly in how to, uh, what you need to do legally um, in terms of arranging things. But ne- there's very little you need to do legally, actually. The vast, you can, you can use your own car in a funeral, you can be buried in all sorts, you can be buried in your own garden, you can, you know, you can, you can do almost anything. But, uh, but people think we have to do all these things right. and then they get ripped off terribly. terribly. I see. So, so I've been interested in how we could do things in a way which matched somebody's life and what their family really wanted um, and how you could do things without... Uh, you know, well, at a moment when people are incredibly vulnerable, exploiting that financially. Um, so, so the way that we do get around that is by charging a fee related to what we put into it. And then all the costs go exactly, um, you know, uh, what, what I pay, they pay. Because what normally happens in most, but not all, but nearly all um, undertakers is that you tell me you want a wicker coffin and I'll tell you that's a thousand quid. Right, um, but actually, it only cost me three hundred. You know, right. so I've just made a three hundred percent markup for picking up the phone and ordering it. Yeah, and to me, that's really naughty. <laughs> because, and what's more, I might make a, I'll make more money selling you a wooden box. Let's say. Yeah. So, so I'll persuade you towards the wooden box, and yeah. actually, you should be able to choose what you want for your mum or whoever it might be, uh, not what I'm going to make the most money on. Anyway, I used to work for a know. marquee company. I'm not going to name no. the marquee company. But um, someone, I heard a story on the yard that someone had ordered to, uh, had requested uh, two um, pub style benches. I'm not sure what their correct name is. You know, the benches where they're, they're yeah. all as one yeah. section. You got the two, t- the, the, the table and the, the benches combined. And um, the, the owner didn't have any as part of his repertoire, I guess, as his inventory is stock. So he just went to home base or wherever you buy them, bought two, and then charged them the price of what he bought them for, for the rental. Which is naughty, isn't it? It is naughty. But the world is full of that. And I'm afraid that the world of, um, of undertakers or undertaking is, is full of that. Because you're at such a vulnerable moment. Yes. You know. Well, emotionally, yeah. For, mm. for whoever's, uh, I guess, I guess there's, there's probably many situations where the, the, the family member or the next of kin who comes in to see you, it's actually maybe kind of glad they're gone, but that's probably in the minority. And most of the time you're dealing with bereavement, aren't you? Yeah, of course you are. And, and, and then, and, 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 well, obviously shock. Um, yeah. But I mean, you're right that, that, you, that one of the things that that training taught me is, is never to make assumptions. And one of them being, you know, that when, when somebody phones you and say, you know, can I talk to you, my husband's just died or whatever it is, not to say I'm so sorry, because <laughs> they may not be, you know. Right. So it's kind of the answer, you know, the, 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 it's like, so how can I help you? Um, because who knows? <laughs> such, that's such a thin line to walk, isn't it? Between yeah. Um, yeah. coming across as being very cold and exactly. uncaring. Exactly. And actually just being very professional very down the line because yeah. I mean in some cases you want that you don't want someone who's going to no. counsel you on the phone no you want some you want someone want who you feel is a sort want... of rock who's going to sort of hold you and you can really trust that 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 this is going to go right I yeah. mean I'm doing one at the moment and, and and what she wanted to hear I'm sure is look don't worry you know relax uh, you know 
I have this in hand. Yeah. I mean, you know, I will arrange that. We will, I will talk to the people, uh, you know, at, at the, the place you want to get uh, your husband buried, which is miles away, and um, you don't need to worry about that. And, I've you got know, this. Yeah, we've got, exactly. And that's what people need to hear, I think, and, and, and feel confident. And um, there's a, a very useful phrase that my colleague told me about, I mean, or um, shared with me, which is false intimacy. Right, uh, avoiding false intimacy because I I like to be liked and and you know I I so I uh, I was definitely guilty of it in the funeral she was talking about in the arranging of sort of you know becoming too much somebody's friend right and actually like you say that's not actually what they want either you can almost make you that know. worse then I guess yeah well you join in their misery yeah and it gets they don't that's not what they need at that moment they don't they don't need a, a mate telling stories they or whatever they need they need to know that somebody's gonna as you say got this yeah let me put this on record right now if i die an untimely death peter you're my guy thank you very much there we go. Thanks. <laughs> That's, uh... there's quite a few people in the room whose funerals we have lined up in that sense but with no expectation <laughs> i quite like talking lined it's good up. it's good to have that conversation you know yeah and think about it even when you're only 32 like you 28 <laughs> <laughs> i feel 32 not that that's that old, but but yeah. Have you um, have you ever did you have any reservations before going into being a funeral director? Where you were like, this is maybe a little macabre for me. Would this? Would, were you worried that that might um, affect your enjoyment of life, being so surrounded by reminders that it's going to end and it could end any day, any time, in any way, painful, dignified. Or however way. There's two questions in there. Yeah. And it's not could, it's would. But anyway, uh, I mean, you know, it will. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, so there's... Uh, no, I don't think... I was never worried about it bringing me closer to death in that sense. Because actually, I welcome that. I think, as I say, I think our society's terrible at avoiding death and not we do avoid talking it. about it. Yeah. We do we, avoid we, yeah. There are cultures that dig up their relatives every 10 years give them new clothes parade around the city yeah or the town whatever put cigarettes in their mouths and uh, mm. it's horrendous really but for them it's completely normal but why is it yeah it, it, well, maybe it's not I mean, horrendous no, no, but no, when no. you first yeah, see yeah. it you think of that's course. horrendous yeah. but but to them it makes sense and yeah. and that's all it really yeah but we do tend to sort of shy away from it and there are cultures that spend their whole lives preparing for it yeah why not so a, a part of mm. life is is death yeah because in, in at least in theory and i think it's it's true you're likely to live your life more fully if you're aware that you know this is it i mean yeah. you know it's not it's not going to be here forever and i do wonder what some of these despots we have in positions of power like trump or I mean, does he think he must think he's immortal he can't be thinking he's about to die otherwise surely you know, he wouldn't do some of the things he does. I don't know, but um, you know, may, uh, yeah, I think it. I think it helps. He's to quite have a that specimen, isn't he? Mm, he's quite it, a specimen. It, we could spend a whole hour talking yeah, about. I shouldn't him. have mentioned. I'm sorry, I mentioned him. But um, he's he's taller than I think a lot of people think. He's about mm. six foot five. He's seventy something. I'm not yeah. a Trump fan. Don't get me. That sounds like I'm I'm reeling off his statistics, like he's like some famous <laughs> baseball player or something. I'm not a Trump fan, but he's quite a physical a specimen, man. isn't he? Mm. He's old. He's, my granddad was dead uh, at 72. Trump was running for president around that sort of mm. age. Six, five. It's, quite, it's kind of impressive, but you get all the best, all the best care, don't you, when you're in that? that I suppose so, but mentally you're at your peak at 28, not 70-something. I do feel like I'm at my peak right now, actually, saying that. I feel like 30's coming. I've had 25 years to have fun, dick around do this and that, figure it out. Mm. And now I'm in let's go time. Great. I'm like, time is, there's <clears throat> Henry Rollins from Black Flag says, there's no downtime, only lifetime. So every time I've got some downtime at the moment, I'm like, Harry, let's get some pods in. Let's do it. <laughs> let's go. I've already been talking to the people. Let's sort it out. I'm just hitting it hard at the moment. It's great. Excellent. Uh, so yeah, you'll always be in a job, won't you, as an undertaker? That's the thing. Yep. Bit um, like a hairdresser. Yes. And uh, who else is always going to have a job? What's the other industry that will always have a job? Farmers, I guess, to a degree. 
Yeah, I suppose so. Well, our farming industry is in a terrible state because the average age of our farmers is 60-something. And, and uh, you know, it, 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 we don't pay enough for our food. No. So I mean, the, their kids are growing up and going, you know what? You work really hard. You're fucked. I can see it. Look at that yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm off to university. Absolutely. I'm going to do something else. You, I mean, you, and you only have to be in the countryside on a Sunday evening and, and hearing all the tractors and think, what? Or on a bank holiday Monday, you know, and then they're still out there, aren't they? They never stop. Never. Yeah, you know Owen, don't you? Owen Singer. Yeah. From Penley. He's one of the hardest working guys I know. Farm, shop. Mm. It's just, I've got to get him on the pod, actually, because yeah, he's got be great. some serious scrapes with death on the farm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a podcast in itself. Yeah. Chlorine poisoning. I think he made a gas one day in one of the... Uh, I don't know what he was doing. He was doing something, mixed something wrong and almost gassed himself to death in one of his uh, barns or something. Mm. I don't know, crazy. F fell into grain silos. That's a, that's a way out, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, he's, a, he's magnificent. <laughs> uh, Drowning so, grain. Mm. So then, so okay, so we've, we've talked about your, uh, you know, your business in death. Mm. Um, but the, the, real, the real interesting stuff is the flat pack democracy and the retaking of local politics, of which I am, I guess, a big part of now. Um, where did this begin? What's the, what is the, uh, what's the inception of this? Because this is, as you said, is your producer role in its fullest extent, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it is in terms of being, well, being in the background in some of the time, and then I've got pushed to the foreground for a while. Um, the, the roots are the same. They're social justice. They're, they're out being... They're recognising, I suppose, that the people who have the power are not using it well. And the people who don't have the power are disengaged and not involved and, and don't even know that they have power to take. You see what I mean? So I'm not saying that, you know... Uh, the the council of Froome was abusing its power particularly uh, when I got involved, um, but I am saying that they they were fairly unambitious and didn't do as much as they might have done. And my entry to this was being involved in environmental stuff. So I I ran um, Sustainable Froome, which is a transition town movement. If that means anything to anyone, which is a sort of network of organisations across Britain and the world of of groups of people wanting to do stuff environmentally. And I'd got involved in that in Froome. And one of the things that one looked to do was to go to the council and say, hey, how can we work together? What are your, and particularly, what's your strategy on things like climate change and peak oil and, uh, you know, a changing world environmentally? And the council didn't have any strategy. They just ran the park. Um, and there was no real interest in having any strategy. And I was also interested in vision, for, uh, not interested, I was involved in vision for Froome. I was interested in it, but <laughs> which was a, the government funded um, uh, consultations, research, whatever, in market towns um, uh, all over Britain, um, uh, market towns and coastal towns, because both had really suffered. When the market moved out of Froome, and suddenly, you know, every Wednesday there weren't farmers and their wives and families coming and spending money and all the rest. That was an, a real death knell to the town. So there's bit, this bit of work called Vision for Froome, which I was involved in um, asking people what they wanted to do. So I knew that there was a lot of ambition, there were lots of ideas and so on. And then I found that there was a council which really wasn't interested. They were like most councils, um, primarily involved in small town things and twinning and, you know, and political infighting between, particularly between the Tories and um, uh, Lib Dems, although there had been Labour councils, councils here as well. Um, and a group of us, uh, so I, I was um, kind of drawn into a group really by Mel Usher, who was the equivalent in many ways of those other leaders, if you like. Mel was very much the, the front man in, in lots of ways, or the man with the ideas, the director of, of Independence for Froome. Um, and uh, yeah, so he, he drew me into a conversation with a bunch of people who I didn't know um, at the time, um, which became initially, should we, I mean, initially was, should we introduce some ideas? Should we try and up the game with this bunch of people? I certainly had no intention of standing as a councillor. Um, but then it sort of rolled into, well, should we have some fun and actually see if we could get some councillors elected? Uh, and then kind of, so that was like only a few months before uh, the election in 2011. 
And people said, yeah, but only if we can have fun. And the guy who said he'd do the signs for us said, yeah, but only if they're not square. So then we had signs around Froome, you know, which were, were voice bubble shaped. And uh, if turns out to be really useful, if not now, when, if only. Yeah. Um, there was a guy who's, who helped us with marketing, who's, who, who, but he said, we need to make it really clear. So we put the one we said, B dot, 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 if outside his house, as in Biff, which is kind of like, what the hell does that mean? You know, anyway. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we had a lot of fun doing that and then suddenly found ourselves running a council because we won 10 out of 17 seats. Yeah. Um, which wasn't as planned. But absolutely central to that were two things. One was that we said, let's set out how we will work together, our, our ways of working, our ethos, our yeah. vision, if you like. No, it's not quite our vision, actually. It's our ethos. It's how we as individuals will behave. And central to that is that we won't behave like Westminster. This won't be all about confrontation. Disagree, by all means, but then, and have our discussions, our arguments and so on. But at the end of that argument, you know, let's properly listen to each other. You know, if I need, you know, I don't know anything about punk music. It makes no sense for me to suddenly be a representative of, of Oakfield Road on whether Froome should have, you know, punk delivered throughout the town. I, I should be seeking information from somebody who knows what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. That was a, it's, it seemed so obvious to us that you should bring in the town. And that was the other bit that you use uh, much more participation. So we wanted participative democracy. So, so uh, constant proper engagement and involvement and sharing of the power and not representation. So not the usual thing, which is Andy gets elected and then you never hear of him until right. about a month before the next election when suddenly you're all over the papers and yeah. you know telling us all these wonderful things you've done and so on and so on and then you get elected again and it goes on and on forever but you know we wanted to have something which was a constantly uh, constant engagement you do it for a few years four or eight if you get re-elected and then you're gone and do something else you know yeah um, that's part of the ethos as well is that you're not there so long that it becomes almost not a career politician but it but it, it shares many parallels with that, doesn't it? It yeah. becomes sort of your gig, mm. if you will. And, uh, and you can't, it doesn't allow you to, to get stale or complacent or even maybe arrogant, although it's very easy to get arrogant in eight years, I'd say. But, um, yeah. but that's the, the general... Absolutely. And, and that you should, be, should remain absolutely part of the community as far as possible. You know, yeah. you're, not, you're not any different. I found it, I don't know what, uh, if you found it weird how when you became a councillor and suddenly people treat you differently. It's like, oh, uh, councillor this and councillor. And, and uh, never yeah. mind, when you're the mayor, Andy, you'll find this. But, you know, it's that, uh, that last sort of, oh, you know, almost bowing down to oh, you. Mr. Mayor. Yeah. Hello, councillor. Hello, yeah. Mr. Mayor. And I get lots of, oh, should we be courtesying you now and stuff like yeah. that, which is kind of like, it's kind of like nice and funny and like, it's a compliment, isn't it? It's flattery. But is it not a bit weird? But it is weird. No, no, totally it's weird. Yeah, because yeah. one day you're just Andy you know, serving me in the co-op and the next minute you get elected and, and you're, you're somebody you've changed, but you haven't. I think uh -huh. that's a real problem, actually, Yeah, because it means that people treat you differently. And I remember at the, our first council meetings as a guy who, I'm not sure he's still alive, but him coming in who wanted to ask us something and standing up and first, you know, and he was, sh his papers were shaking, you know, and, and he said, thank you, thank you so much for allowing me to speak. And you think, yeah. well, I think it's like I or somebody said, hang on, hang on. First yeah. of all, you don't need to stand up, you know, do stand up if you want to, but you don't need to. And actually there's no need to thank us. It's your council. <laughs> yeah, we're here for you. This is like, we're doing it's like, And we're job. doing this, we should be doing it together. Yeah. You know, and why is it really that different from being a school governor? So, I mean, the school, the college, has a budget of what? I don't know, 20 million a year or something? I mean, 20 times the council's? That's yeah. a guess. Might be 10 million. But, you know, what's more important, the, the education of a whole generation of Froome's youth or the town council? But who can name any one of the governors of the, of the college or who gives it, you know, it's like... Yeah. I've never understood that. Uh, to me, there's a number of organisations in the town and they have different roles. The council is one of them. Yeah. It's no more important or, or, or not. Yeah, I get, this, I get this a lot when people go, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Mm. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate you taking it. My time isn't money. My time is not money. Mm. I have a day job. Yes. Yeah. Just, just like most of us. My time outside of that 
is not money. You're taking my time right now because I put myself up for election. I I knew what I was getting into, yeah. and that involved talking to you today. I get. I like. I like the respect. I like people to be um, respectful, and courteous. Hmm. I like that. I do like that, and we all like that. But yeah, you don't have to thank me for my time. No. I'm not sat there looking at my watch, going. No. This is uh, my time is money right now. I don't know. Well, what that was one of the things which you'll know, Andy. We did uh, every other council, not every other, but nearly every other council has this thing where the public can only speak for a few minutes at the beginning of the meeting. Normally they have to book in. So you have to, you know, phone up the town clerk or whatever and say, I need two minutes to talk about the bike lane in such and such a place. Then you're called forward, you stand up, you do your two minutes, and then the councillors don't even have to thank you. They don't have to say anything. They don't have, you know, so, and then it's like, next. Um, and often in, in many councils, they don't thank you or anything. Right. They just ignore bullshit. you. And it's such bullshit. And when we, but when we took that away, we said, okay, for a start, if you want to talk about an agenda item, you can do it at the agenda item, not just in the public bit. Because otherwise people have forgotten your comment at the beginning when an hour later you'd reach the agenda item. But also you can talk for as long as you want. Yeah. And and the answer was, or people said, oh, God, you're going to get some nutters who go on and on and on. In all my time as a councillor, nobody ever abused that because we treated them as, you know, human beings. And yes. sometimes as, as the chair, I'm, I probably did go, you know, okay, Andy, we've got it now. But in a nice way, I'd say, okay, uh -huh. I think we've got that point now and it'd be great, you know, if there's anything else you want to say, do let us know, da, 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 da. But it wasn't shut up and sit down. I kind of like nutters as well a little bit. They're really important. Yeah. Especially in a small town. I find, yeah. And that is the part, that's the small town aspect of it as well, is that, you know, if we're sat in here um, and you present your piece and we don't even say hell, uh, thank you or uh, pass a comment or acknowledge it, I have to face you out in that big wide world. I have to bump into you in the street. Hmm. I have to live amongst you. Do you know what I mean? I'm not going to be... No. Do you know what I mean? You're my, my neighbour, basically. Hmm. So acknowledge them. Exactly. Talk to them. I'm gonna, well, I guarantee I'm going to see them three times this week after that. Yeah, well, you, so you definitely There's no will, way you're, yeah. I'm, I'm going to brush you off. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. I mean? so. You may remember Charles Wood. Or, do you remember? He, was a, he was a Tory. Um, he was a Tory who always wanted to be a councillor and never quite got elected. Um, but uh, he came to lots Tory, and lots of meetings. Tory, not getting elected? Yeah. Jesus. Um, and... Uh, but he presented, he was the chair of aforementioned Vision for Froome. Um, so he'd done a huge amount of work. And he came to the council, presented the report to them, had his two minutes to present it, and nobody even thanked him. Or they, well, there was, uh, there was, even if they thanked him, there was no discussion at all. And it's like, this is a whole, it was 80,000 quid's worth of consultation with the community. Yeah. Has anybody read it? Does anybody? He was furious. I mean, and half the council at that time were Tory. But he just... It, and that was partly why he always privately um, bought into the, what I and others were saying. We yeah. should do this differently because he felt that that's, it's just so rude. It's rude. And, and to be a Tory and have, a, I guess, a majority Tory council, not even. Mm. That's just, well, it's unacceptable. It's wrong. It? Yeah. Whichever, whichever, Which, left whichever or right, party, whichever you be, lean, yeah, 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 it's, yeah. Just, it's just—it's wrong because it's we wrong. do all live in the same community, and and people really care about things, don't they? And yeah. you or I may not really care that much about—I don't know—whether a tree is or isn't being properly tied up in such and such a playground. But if that person planted it, or I don't know, they planted it in memory of their wife who died or something, you know. Of course, you've got to, you know, you really do need to care or, or listen to their, you know, to them because it's, well, it's just all wrong and not to. And as you say, they're part of, these are the people we live with, like it or not. Yes. And this is, this is why the independents were, this is the inception is so that we don't, you don't have representatives who are uh, answering to a, uh, a, a party line or answering to a head office in London or wherever. Yeah. You know, the, that's the whole point of putting up independent candidates to challenge the party, the, you know, the, the status quo mm. of the party politics Absolutely. in small towns. Um, yeah. is, it your, is it your plan? Is it your, was it your ambition to take districts, take county levels, infiltrate parliament? Um, Is there a long game in this, Peter? Initially, no. 
<laughs> so I was all. I always said that this won't work at a higher level. That that you need that, that local bit because on the doorstep, what you're saying to people is, you know, I'm Andy. Vote for me. Or in my case, I suppose I should be saying, I'm Peter. <laughs> um, I'm Peter. You know, vote for me. I'm not going. I don't know what my policy is because I'm going to come back to you. Yeah. Um, you know. So you need to trust me. Uh, and you need to you know, trust that this is how I will work with you and my colleagues. And that's a bit of a leap. It's a particular leap if there's a bigger budget. So let's say you do control um, roads or um, schools, you know, large numbers of millions of quid, the bypass or whatever. To, if somebody says, so what are you going to do about the bypass? And your answer is, well, you know, I haven't made my mind up. I'll come back to you later. It's kind of all a bit, but I don't trust you. You know, because you could be going to say anything and you could have all got together. You could have a policy which nobody likes. Um, so I always felt it'll never work at a higher level. We did register um, a political party in order to be able to stand up mend it, um, but we never used it. And the plan was to try and um, independentize, or whatever you might call it, um, Shepton Mallet, Glastonbury Wells, you know, all the other local towns. But then even then, even if you won every seat in those, which would be really difficult, and then you formed some sort of coalition, um, you still haven't got a majority. Because there's this huge rural hinterland of Tories who've been there forever. Um, and how do you, you know, walk up a long farm drive and knock on a door and try and get somebody, you know, to vote or go to the pub where, you know, the, the, the district councillors goes to that pub too yeah. and they've always been there and you haven't and you go in and say vote for me i'm an independent it's not going to work is it yeah so i could never see a way of doing it um what's changed a bit is that um people have done it so people have stood particularly they've got a really strong town base and then they've also stood at district or at county uh-huh. but they've only so and got in um there's a and there are some really good uh, county councillors now, or unitary councillors, who've got in like that, but they've always got in as in part of a coalition. Right. So in a sense, it's luck, you know. And the cases I'm thinking of, they're part of a anybody but the Tories coalition, <laughs> um, essentially. Right. You know. So um, um, what's it called? Bournemouth, Pool, and Christchurch. I, I might have got those in the wrong order. Which is a new unitary. There's two independents who are on the cabinet of that, who got in like that. Right. Um, you know. So I said, it's a complete waste of time. I don't know why you're bothering. And I've had to eat my hat. There they are, running a show. You're quite happy to be proven wrong there, though. I'm very happy to be proven wrong. I think, I think making mistakes and being proven wrong is really important. It sounds like I'm actually advocating making mistakes, which I'm not. I'm, I'm, but I'm definitely advocating taking risks. I mean, Mel often said, we won't kill anyone. You know, at this level, we won't kill anyone. We're not making decisions that are going to have a huge impact. Whether we put planters on the on the boil cross or don't put them on the boil oh, cross. Don't you know. get me started with that. Well, you know, but it won't kill anyone. <laughs> so, so actually, why not do the thing that is that? Why not do something which may be unpopular? Risk, just do it. Risk it. You know, sometimes, um, and 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 push the boat out a bit and get involved in in things which town councils don't normally do. It's yeah. really important. And then when you do make mistakes, I mean, I made one in particular, I can, I can I probably in this room actually, saying, and I, I got, I don't get cross for it a lot, but I, I got kind of fed up with everyone questioning my pushing for, this was to fund, a, it was going to be a real state-of-the-art database that could have every organisation in the voluntary sector in Froome on it and all up to date and really work, plus all sorts of bells and whistles. And the first... I think it was five grand, might have been 10. Anyway, we needed another 10 grand or something like that. And, everyone, and a lot of people were saying, look, we spent the first 10, it hasn't worked. Ooh, how do we know it's going to work? And I was going, look, we spent the first 10. We just, if we spend the next 10, it'll definitely work. And I remember saying, look, just trust me, you know, and everyone said, oh, all right, okay. So we gave them the money and it didn't work. <laughs> um, you know. But there were lots of things which we could then learn from that. And I, again, had to kind of go, look, I was wrong. I made this decision based on these things, which at the time I felt was absolutely right because this is what we needed. I wasted, you know, a pound ahead of the people of Froome. I'm sorry. But I think it's more, personally, I'd rather do that and be wrong sometimes than constantly going, oh, God. You know, we don't want to be re-elected. If you're, you know, as an independent, 
it, it, your, your motivation shouldn't be wanting to be re-elected. So you should be prepared to make unpopular decisions, I think. Right. Get right. it wrong. Cool. Admit it. Yeah. That's what we do in ordinary life, isn't it? Why should politics be any different? Yeah. I think it's because we, we, uh, our, our view of politics is of national and global politics. Mm. And uh, I've got to admit, when I didn't know anything about local politics, I learned about local politics while I was running for election. Mm. That, I think about that now, that's batshit crazy. It's nuts. But someone opened a door to me based off me joking about being the mayor of Fritton. Mm. And these were serious people, I thought, that were opening doors to me. And I thought, well, they see something here. And I'd be stupid not to mm. go through and explore it. Glad I did. But but I didn't know anything about it. And in, in reading comments on Facebook in the Froome group and other things, you know, just as mm. well as I do, you look through the, that comment section, 80% of them are incorrect. Yeah. Believe that we have powers that we don't have. Yep. And get very passionate for so 10 where, minutes yeah 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 so where's it. the education system why is that not part of the college you know it only would have to be a small part of uh, something that you you learn at college or you know but because it's not just about freedom is it and people that have no idea how the system works they have no idea how how um the national system works and when you get to something like brexit when i mean which for me went wrong because people didn't know what they were doing didn't know what they were voting for no i gotta admit i, I probably wouldn't have at that moment I yeah. couldn't vote for it. I was at Glastonbury. Right. And I was I was called up to go work at Glastonbury at very short notice. So I didn't I couldn't do any postal vote or anything like that. And I said I wasn't massively politically aware at that point. I was just kind of doing my thing, hmm. trying to make some of it myself, trying to explore different things. And um I think that was maybe a watershed moment for a lot of people. Sure. After that, you woke up that next day and you went, Oh. Maybe I should have voted. Oh, what's oh, going yeah, on yeah. now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, so you've you've become the mayor of Froome. Mm -hmm. You have a nice time doing that. Mm -hmm. You ran for? Did you do four years or eight? Eight, eight. Yeah, yeah. And then you wrote the Bible of independent politics, flat pack democracy. <laughs> I'm not quite sure it's the Bible, but <laughs> so I'm actually, quoting you here. Yeah. I think you called it I'm, the Bible. No, I never would have called it. <laughs> I've just had problems with someone. I'm 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 doing a I'm doing a podcast, uh, not podcast. I'm doing a, a workshop in Australia, and she's advertised as you know I'm advertised as as the legend of of local politics. I and mean, I've said, hang on, hang on, hang on. The Most legend. legends are dead. <laughs> and, I, you know, and it's like, I do not, please remove the word legend. Anyway, Gunslinger. It's, um, now, I wrote Flatback Democracy halfway through, actually, because it oh, was right. basically how to, how to take power. Um, persuaded by somebody, uh, by a publisher, that it was a good story. Um, and he was right in that, I mean, I'm, my modesty didn't like the idea of uh, putting this forward in that way. But what I realized is that because we'd done it, it actually made a difference. And so we have we and that story have inspired a lot of other places and it yes. has changed a lot of the way that other places are run. And then more recently I wrote Flatpak 2, which is um, basically, so what? So what did Froome actually do? You know, did it, did it really make a difference? And then also other, the initial, um, the, the second movers. So, so what have they done? What of things like those ways of working I, I mentioned, the, um, the values, what, are, what, what versions of other people produced, what variants of the theme? Because I, or, uh, wrongly in a way I called or we called Flatpak um, a DIY manual it's not really meant to be that it's not meant to be an Ikea you know do ex follow exactly these instructions it's right. meant to be here's an idea or here's a whole set of ideas take what useful for you um, adapt and evolve as, as you wish and that of course is what other people have done and so beyond those books which have sold very well mm -hmm. you, you now have fl uh, the Flatpak Democracy website Mm -hmm. You're expanding into social media. What is this? I'm, I'm hesitant to say empire, but what is the what what is it becoming? Because Flatpak Democracy seems to be becoming a movement now, or a, an organisation, or some sort of umbrella term, which you are overseeing. Yeah, it's a cult, Andy. It's a cult. That's the word I was looking for, Peter. <laughs> there is, there is, there is no. Where's that Kool Aid? There is no T-shirt. Therefore, it's not a cult. <laughs> um, uh, so, the top end of democracy is completely and utterly hopeless 
It's it's an unmitigated disaster. And I say that, I don't even care which which party's in. But now we've got a bunch of people elected by 30% of the population who are there, whether we like it or not, for eight years, or five years, sorry. But it's, it's insane. So we, and we can't do anything about it. And they will never vote for Christmas, i.e. their turkeys will never vote for Christmas. And so they're never going to change it. The Labour Party wouldn't change it when they had power. So nobody's going to change the system. So for me, the only way to, to rectify the system is to try and get as many pixels, as many little dots of, of hope over the whole country as we can. There's 10,000 parish and, and town councils. So if all of them were made functional, I don't care what they're called. I don't actually want the cult. I don't, you know, I don't care whether they're flat pack or not. All I, if, if they actually realised they could change people's lives and could play an, an incredibly important role in their local community and took that on and in the process we got younger uh, you know people particularly well younger people from uh, all different backgrounds the average councillor is an old white man uh, they're me not you uh, you know and they're, they're definitely not uh, black or you know uh, from any other minority group so if we could change that and, and get a prop, properly representative layer across the country that was really doing stuff, then maybe uh, you know, a national government would, would see that because that's 10,000 times 20 councillors, well, let's say an average of 10. I mean, it's, you know, it's 100,000 councillors, but they represent everybody. Mm. You know? So if they're kind of going, actually, you know what? Climate change exists and we need to take it seriously. Then maybe a government looking at all that lot would kind of go, we need to respond to this lot because if we do something totally averse to what the people are saying and we've got an election coming then you know we're in the shit so i don't know it's it, it, it's like offer me something else that might work i mean guy fawkes isn't going to work i mean that didn't end well no certainly didn't end well for guy um you know so so violent revolution is definitely not an option starting a new party there are 70 new parties in the last elections in britain None of them got any votes. Yeah. You know, nobody ever gets any votes outside of the national parties. So you can't take the system. Uh, so for me, this is the only way. So this is uh, national and then world domination starting at a community level. I love it. I love it. Thanks very much for coming on. I got one, I got one other thing for you. It's, it's more of a... Uh, What's the word? Uh, more um, sort of more of an intrigue to scratch scratch an itch. When I the, the the eve before the election, I posted on my on my Facebook wall a photoshopped image of Terminator Two, my head on it, um, and it said, uh, "Come with me, if with the if logo, if you want to vote, right?" And that was kicking off it was going viral people were loving it people were also hating it mm. some people were like they hung up getting hung up on the gun they didn't like it you liked it why did you like it and you wrote about it in the book but it didn't make the cut and this is what i want to know because i've always been intrigued about what you would have said about that section of the campaign in your in your book you cut it okay I'm sorry it didn't make the cut. That's okay. Um, I, loved, I, I did, and I do love the picture. Uh, for me, that was the pirate bit. Yeah. I think it's really important to put out uh, things that, that provoke conversation. Uh, and, and it might, I don't know what you thought about the gun bit. It might have been that afterwards, even if you hadn't been pushed that way, you, could have gone, you might have gone, okay, I can see that maybe people might have taken offense. I can see that wasn't wise, but the general image. You know, this is the pun, that, basically. Yeah, yeah it's a bit exactly. Fun for me, but for, the gun was really divisive. Yeah, I know. Personally, I was, I was, I was definitely with you. I, I love all that sort of pushing the boat out and doing things differently, and um, and that, incidentally, because I haven't mentioned them before, is is what the pirates were. They, the image that they were given was by the British state. Um, they were way ahead of their time. Um, up to sixty percent of most of the big boats were black. Uh, they, the, the difference between what the captains earned and the cabin boy um, was four times. You know, in the co-op, it's ten times. You know, the, the radical organisations in Britain—they were—they were doing some fantastic things. They—they they put some of all the, the bounty to one side for if anybody got injured. You know, they had a social services. You know, they gave black people. They had rights for black people. They were sharing the bounty. They were way ahead of their times. And so, I think being out there as you know, different images 
the reason why you potentially are, well, have already been, but can be way, way more interesting as a counsellor is by pushing those boundaries, I think, and getting people who would never get involved in this sort of thing involved. It doesn't mean they have to like guns, but it means they have to be thinking people. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, the more wacky images and, and madness, the better. <laughs> I think you can leave it there. That's a great answer. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. That was Peter McFadden. Please don't forget to check out the links to all things Flatpak Democracy in the show note descriptions. Uh, like, subscribe, leave us a little review. If you want to follow my antics on Instagram, you can at, at Andy underscore S1S. This podcast was produced by the indomitable Harry Williams. Please check us out next week on The Giant Pod.